I invite you to turn with me this morning uh, to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at all three verses of Psalm 131. The title of the sermon is Cultivating a Hope-Filled Life. Cultivating a Hope-Filled Life. In 1967, two American psychologists conducted research on animal behavior that involved controlled electric shocks to dogs. These men found that whenever the dogs learned that they could not escape the shock, they quit trying, and they would lay down and give up. And even when the psychologists removed the barriers so that the dogs could potentially escape, the dogs no longer tried. They just laid down. Well, they reproduced a similar experiment with humans, And they put them in two separate rooms and played loud, obnoxious noises. Who who volunteers for these things? Well, this is what they did. It was the 60s. So they put them uh, in a room, two separate rooms with loud, obnoxious noises. And in one room, there was a lever that could be pulled to stop the noise. The other room had the same lever, but the lever didn't work. And whenever they swapped the people around, they found that the people who started in the room with the broken lever didn't even try to stop the sound whenever they got into the second room. They just miserably endured the sound when they could have potentially stopped it. Well, the psychologists called this learned helplessness. We would call it a loss of hope. It's a sad thing to see, isn't it? When someone entirely loses hope. When someone has suffered for so long and they finally just give up. They simply lose hope. Well, not surprisingly, the Bible has much to say about hope and places a strong emphasis on the role of hope in the Christian's life. Why do you think that is? Why does the Bible have so much to say about hope? Well, I think it's because our lives are so full of difficulties. We are constantly in situations where we are tempted to lose hope. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Jesus said, John 16, in this world you will have trouble. It's guaranteed that we will have difficulties in life. And so God, in his wisdom, has given us a book full of hope. Well, some of you are in situations right now where you have suffered for so long and you're on the brink, perhaps, of giving up. Some of you have received news this week that tempts you to give up hope. Some of you have prayed for an unbelieving spouse for years, and still there's no repentance, and you're tempted to give up hope. Some of you have prayed for rebellious children for years, with no result, it seems, and you're tempted to give up hope. Some of you have prayed to be married for years, You're tempted to give up hope. Some of you didn't get the job. You didn't get into the college. Uh, Your life has just generally not turned out the way that you hoped it would. We can multiply examples. But you're tempted to lose hope. Some of you are here this morning because you have perhaps tried everything else in life. And coming to Calvary Bible Church was your last Shot at hope. Well, we are glad that you're here, if that's you. If you feel empty, unsatisfied, you've tried all that the world has to give you, and now you're here because you heard that Christians know something about hope, they're right. You were right to come here because we do know about hope, right? We are a hopeful people. 
And we're hopeful not because we have figured out um, how to attain or work our way to heaven. That's not why we're hopeful. Uh, We're not hopeful because we uh, are perfect or we've arrived. No, that's not why we're hopeful. We're hopeful because we are great sinners, but God has provided for us an even greater Savior. And that's where our hope is. So our hope for you, if you're here looking for hope, is that you will come to know our Savior. He is the friend of sinners. And if you're a sinner, and you are, He will be your friend if you repent and confess your sins to Him. Well, wherever you are on the spectrum of hope, hope is something that you desperately need. And the most dangerous thing we can do in a trial is lose hope. If you lose hope, you will live in fear, anxiety, worry, depression, and you will be useless to the kingdom of God. If you lose hope, Christian, you will be useless in the kingdom of God. Hope is vital to Christian flourishing. If you don't have it, you will not survive. So, given the vital role that hope plays in life, how are we to get it? How are we to cultivate it? How are we to maintain hope in prolonged seasons of difficulty? How do we establish a life characterized by hopefulness? Well, in Psalm 131, King David answers these questions for us by giving us a vivid demonstration of what it looks like to hope in God. And he also gives us an example. Now, really, well, by his example, we're able to see how we as Christians today can cultivate a life of hope. All right, so if you'll stand with me, we'll read Psalm 131. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters, or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. You can be seated. Well, some psalms give us the historical context, but not this one. We're not exactly sure what prompted David to write this brief psalm, but we do know that David was a man who lived a remarkable life. David went from being a shepherd boy to being a military hero to being the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. The story of David is simply remarkable. But for all of its glory and wealth and prosperity, we know that David was a man who experienced trial. Just think of this. A decade of his life was spent being oppressed by the strongest man in the world, in David's world at least. He was oppressed and hunted down by Saul, the king of Israel, where he was displaced from his home, driven from the comforts of life. He lived in caves, in exile from his country. He suffered the loss of a young child. He had terrible family relationships, terrible family relationships. I mean, his own son, Talk about teenage rebellion. His own son, Absalom, tried to kick him out of his throne, off of his throne, um, and effectively killed David to become king. And we could multiply the examples of David's suffering, but we know that he was a man who experienced deep trials. And every one of these trials that David experienced were an opportunity for him to lose hope. Think about 10 years of living in a cave. If there's anything that will cause you to lose hope, that might be it. Your own son trying to overthrow you. That's hopeless, it seems. 
Well, David, by the grace of God, was able, in all of these circumstances, to continually cultivate a life of hope. And in Psalm 131, he demonstrates for us how it was that he did that. How did he cultivate a life of hope in the midst of ongoing trial? Well, what he's really doing in Psalm 131 is seen in verse 3. This is the only imperative in the psalm. And he says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. That's what he's doing. That's his objective. The goal of this psalm is to shake you a little bit and get you aroused to hope in God. That's the goal of this psalm and that's the goal of this sermon. So I hope, with the Lord's help, you'll leave this sermon, leave this morning, full of hope and committed to cultivate life, a life of hope. Well, David here is commanding Israel to continually hope in God. And his objective, arouse, rouse these people to hope. And, and the way that he does it is by giving them two Ways, essentially. He gives them two ways that he himself has cultivated hope in his life. He sets himself forth as the example of how do you cultivate life, hope in your life. And he gives us two ways. Two ways to cultivate hope in your life. And let me give you a promise before I give you these two. Here's a promise. All right? If you commit yourself to imitate David's example, you will live a hope-filled life. I promise. If you commit yourself to imitate David's example that he gives in this psalm, you will be a person characterized by hope. I'm not saying that you're going to be rich, that your problems will go away, but I'm saying imitate David's example and you will have David's hope. The first thing, the first way that David gives for us to cultivate hope is found in verse 1. He says this, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. The first thing he models for us is that if you want to have a hope-filled life, you have to cultivate A humble posture before God. You have to assume a humble posture before your God. And notice, verse 1. This humble posture begins with the heart. Literally, he says, O Yahweh, the covenant name of God, my heart is not high, it's not proud. Now, according to Scripture, the heart is the real identity of every man. It's the inner life that you live before God and before yourself. In one sense, it's a life that no one else can see but you. And, of course, God. But in another sense, your heart is on display all the time. It's on display in how you speak. Your heart is on display in how you dress, how you respond to minor irritations, how you respond when you're hungry, how you respond when life is hard. All of these things display what is going on in your heart. Your heart is invisible then, but it's highly visible. The heart, according to Scripture, is actually the fountain from which your entire life flows. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? Why do we watch over our heart with all diligence? For from it flow the springs of life. Some of you are quoting this as I'm saying. We know this verse. Jesus, Jesus repeated this same teaching in Mark 7 when he said, from within Out of the heart of men 
precede evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, etc. In other words, all of your behavior flows out of your heart. For that reason, Solomon told us to watch over our heart and to guard it vigilantly. If the fountain of your life is contaminated, then your whole life will be polluted. Right? The fountain is contaminated, the whole life is contaminated. And so David begins in Psalm 131 with the heart. He begins there because it's where it all begins. It all begins in the heart. God, he says, my heart, the fountain of my life, is not proud. I have kept a close watch on it, and I've brought it into a posture of humility. Let me give you a definition of hope before we go any further. Here's what the Bible means when it says hope. Biblical hope is not blind optimism. That's important. The word hope is thrown around all of the time. And its usual definition is some sort of vague optimism in the ether somewhere. Right? Biblical hope is not rooted in abstraction. Biblical hope is a confident expectation or trust in God. A confident expectation or trust in God. It's a hope in God Himself. And in whatever God wants to propose in this world. That's hope. Confident expectation in God. And the enemy of that hope is pride. Because pride is the enemy to hope. I want to give you a few examples of what it would look like to have a proud heart. David says, I don't have a proud heart, Lord. I've humbled myself. Well, we need to know, what does it look like to be proud of heart? Let me give you three examples, and then we'll look at David's example in Psalm 131. Well, when your heart is proud, you will inevitably... Try to claim power and authority over people and circumstances that are beyond your control. Proud people seek to claim for themselves power and authority that is beyond their control. We see this in the King Uzziah in the Old Testament. Listen to 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16. But when he became strong, his heart was proud. So that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Well, that may not sound like a big deal. But God had set clear boundaries for Uzziah and for other kings of Israel. They were not to make sacrifices. They were not to go into the temple and function as priests. The priests were the only ones called to do this. But Uzziah dismissed God's law and assumed authority that was not his. And that's what proud people do. They overreach their boundaries. They assume authority over which God has given them none. They don't stay within their God-ordained boundaries. Remember that as we get further in this psalm. We're going to see what that looks like in David. Well, that's the first thing. Second, when when your heart is proud, you will be ungrateful for all that God has done for you. Proud people are not thankful people. Listen to 2 Chronicles 32. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him, And gave him a sign. Healed him. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. Why? Why wasn't Hezekiah thankful? Because his heart was proud. Same language. Psalm 131. Proud heart is an ungrateful heart. Third. 
When your heart is proud, you will forget God. And you will begin to live as a functional atheist in the world. God will no longer be in the picture of your life. When the people of Israel entered into or were poised to enter into the promised land, God warned them that they would be tempted towards high-heartedness or pride. In Deuteronomy 8, this is what the Lord told them. Beware, be on guard, be vigilant, be watchful, that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. You may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. That's the danger. When life is going well, uh, the Lord is prospering you, that your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God. The proud person enjoys all the gifts of God and then forgets God. And when God is not in the picture of your life, there is no hope. If there is no God, there is no hope. So what does it look like to have a proud heart? Well, it looks like you claiming authority over people and circumstances that don't be, belong to you, beyond your control. It looks like you focusing on trouble in the midst of your trial, rather than on God's prior goodness to you, and even current goodness to you, in the midst of your difficulty. It looks like you ceasing to be grateful and giving thanks. It looks like you forgetting God and bearing under the weight of your trial as if God were not there. If you do that long enough, you will lose hope. Because you are not able to bear alone. And you know that. Well, these are all manifestations of pride in the Old Testament, but David, in this psalm, gives us a specific manifestation of pride that is especially common to us. And look at uh, verse 1. He says, Nor do I involve myself in great matters, or in things too difficult for me. Literally, he says, I do not walk in great things or in things too wonderful, marvelous, or difficult for me. There's a progression here in this verse. David begins with his heart, he goes to his eyes, and now he's talking about his walk or his behavior what he's doing, or what he's not doing. Well, what he says he's not doing is he's not involving himself in matters that are beyond his human comprehension. Is that not a temptation during trial? The proud person assumes authority and power over the circumstances of his trial and, and, and tries to exhibit control in areas that are beyond his responsibility. He doesn't give God thanks, but he also involves himself with things that are too great and too wonderful for him. The proud person is not content to just be the creature before the Creator. The proud person is never content simply to trust God. God. They want to arrogantly peer into the hidden counsel of God. In other words, in the midst of trial, rather than humbly embracing their limited knowledge of a situation, the proud person sets himself to untangle the mysteries of God's unfolding providence. The proud man occupies himself with things that are beyond the sphere of his understanding. Let me help you 
understand exactly what David is, is getting at here with this phrase. The same phrase is used in Genesis 18. When God appeared to Abraham, and he reminded Abraham that Sarah was going to have a baby. And scripture says that Sarah was listening at the door of the tent. And when she overheard the message, what did she do? She laughed to herself and said, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? In other words, I'm old, my husband's old, and God is saying that we're going to have a baby. Doesn't God know how this works? (laughs) Has he forgotten anatomy and physiology? Sarah was giving her best effort to comprehend the situation. And for her, it was laughable. She gathered the data, drew the obvious conclusion that what God was saying was going to happen was simply impossible. And do you remember the Lord's response? Deuteronomy 18, verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? This is the same word David uses in Psalm 131. David is not doing what Sarah did. Right? Sarah says, God, two old people cannot have a baby. Let me tell you how this thing works. Let me tell you how to run your world. It won't happen. You can try, but it's not going to happen. David is refusing to do that. David acknowledges that he is a finite human being. Of course, things don't make sense to him. But he knows his place is not to untangle the mysteries of God's providence. He is limited in what he can do, specifically regarding his hope. He is limited in what he actually knows. His knowledge is limited. And because of that, David says, I don't have comprehensive knowledge. That's a phrase we should all have on repeat in trial. I do not have comprehensive knowledge of this situation. God is at work doing a million other things that I have no idea about. And David says, I don't even know what you're doing. And I'm not going to occupy myself with things beyond the sphere of my responsibility. Remember, pride exerts itself to have authority in areas that don't belong to it. David says, I'm not doing that. In trial, we are tempted, though, to peer into the hidden counsel of God, to assume that we have comprehensive knowledge. We begin to question God's dealings with us, And our hearts are raised to a God-like level. So much so that we will even attempt to put God on trial. Be angry with Him. Tell Him what He's doing is wrong. Pride is a dangerous thing. Maybe the greatest Old Testament example of this is Job. And here is a man who lived righteously and enjoyed the wealth and material blessings of God. And then out of nowhere, he loses everything. Why? Why? Why does Job experience such a painful trial? Why does this pain have to be here? Why can't God, you can resolve this. Why don't you do it? Well, as readers of the story of Job, we know the answer to Job's problem. We have the first 12 verses of chapter 1 that give us insight into what Job and his friends were never told. The suffering of Job was part of a larger outworking of God's plan. God was there. God was at work. We are given a peek behind the curtain, but Job wasn't. The whole context of Job, just think about it. The whole context of Job demonstrates the utter folly of trying to peer into the hidden counsel of God. You don't belong there. 
And Job repeatedly reminds us of that. Friend after friend comes to him and says, I know the real problem here, Job. Let me tell you why you are suffering the way you are. Let me tell you the hidden counsel of God. I know it. And even Job joins in on the madness. Until finally we get some relief as readers of Job in chapter 38, where God finally shows up. And for several chapters, he unfolds for Job his humanity. Job's heart had become exalted. He was dabbling in things that didn't belong to him. And finally, Job repents of his pride in chapter 42. And listen to what he says. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? In other words, Job is confessing that his speculations into the divine counsel only compounded the confusion surrounded his trial. And listen to what he says next. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. Things which I did not know. This is the same word that David uses in Psalm 131. I have not occupied myself with things too wonderful for me. Job's problem was that he was involving himself in things that were way beyond him. His job, his responsibility in trial was not to untangle the mystery of God. But what was his job? What was he called to do? Well, to continue to obey God and live righteously. That was his responsibility. Not to answer all the the many questions that emerged throughout the time of his suffering. And if you want to be hopeful in trial, you also have to know your responsibility in trial and stay there. Abide in what your clear instructions are. And that is to obey and live righteously. You do not need to occupy yourself with things too great, too wonderful for you. We need to learn that there is such a thing as the hidden will of God. Hidden will of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. Listen to this carefully. The secret things belong to us. No, they don't belong to us. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Right? The secret things are God's. Ours are the things that are revealed. This is where we live in trial, not in the hidden counsel of God. The things that God has not chosen to reveal to us are the things that we do not know. And when God, in His sovereign prerogative, wants to let you know something that's going on, wants to give you a peek behind the veil, as it were, He will. But God wisely hides His purposes from us. We live and die and often never know exactly why some things occurred. Isn't that true? We would do well to learn from the hymn writer. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, not you. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. David resolved to not occupy himself with things beyond the sphere of his knowledge. If you want to live a hope-filled life, the first thing you must do is to cultivate a humble posture before God, one that embraces your human limitations and does not encroach upon God's duties. 
Be low and stay low. And while you're there, low, enjoy the help of God. God opposes the proud. You want his opposition? Keep a high heart. You want his help? Be humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Second, if you want to live a hope-filled life, you must cultivate childlike contentment in God. You've got to be humble. You've got to cultivate a humble posture before God if you're going to live a hope-filled life. But you also have to be content in God. If you're not content, you will never have hope. Look at verse 2. David says, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. Now notice, this is not passive language. David is not letting go and letting God calm him. He says, surely I have composed and quieted my soul. And the clear implication here is that David's soul was not always calm and composed. Wouldn't it be nice if that's the way it was? That our soul was always perfectly serene, calm, collected? We know that is not the case. Our souls are noisy. They're rough. And that's especially true during trials. Trials have the ability, like a a stick in an ant bed, to stir up our soul and arouse all of this chaos and confusion. Right? And sometimes it can be the smallest, most insignificant thing that gets your soul stirred up. And other times it's prolonged agitation. It's hard. And in that sort of agitation and turmoil... And instability, hope can easily be lost. Spurgeon said, Sooner may a man calm the sea, or rule the wind, or tame a tiger, than quiet himself. We are clamorous, uneasy, petulant people. Is your experience that sometimes trying to compose your soul is like trying to tame a tiger? It's that way for me. It seems so simple, but the the soul is so noisy. But David says, surely I have composed and quieted my soul. It's no longer noisy and clamorous and chaotic. This does not happen, though, without your grace-driven effort. I want to show you that. David emphasizes that here. No one casually drifts into a composed and quieted soul. The English word here, surely, which is in the NASB, the ESV has but, but the the NASB captures the word well, surely, the English word translates a Hebrew phrase that was typically used to introduce an oath or an action that someone was committing themselves to take. It's 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 a... A technical word. Literally, it's if not. But it's used in these important places in the Old Testament where oaths or commitments are involved. It's used in Jeremiah 51, 14. Yahweh of hosts swears by himself, I will surely fill you with a population like locusts. And he goes on. He's talking about judging Babylon. He's committed himself to do it. It's certainly going to happen. Likewise, in verse 2, David is saying, I'm committed to this. I've covenanted, I've committed, I'm resolved to do this work of calming and quieting my soul. Why? Without that, you won't have hope. And remember, David is trying to arouse the people of Israel to hope. And here's what you do. You calm and compose your soul. It's work. The, the word used for composed here is the same word that's used to describe 
cultivating soil or leveling a field so that you can sow seed. It's hard work. Fields don't just plow themselves, right? It takes effort. And David Pallison says that no soul is ever composed without disciplined effort empowered by God's grace. And he calls this self-mastery by the grace of God. How do we do this? How do we have a calm and composed soul? Well, as we've already said, it starts with assuming a posture of humility before God. If you think that you are in charge of all the little intricacies of your life and making sure that you maintain your place in life, you will not have a calm and composed soul. It reminds me of Matthew 6, where Jesus says, Don't worry. Don't be anxious about life. The anxious person, why are they anxious? They're operating outside of the sphere of their responsibility. It's pride. It's pride. Well, so if you're going to be hopeful, and you're going to have a calm and composed soul, you've got to assume a posture of humility. But in verse 2, David gives us a specific insight into how we can compose and quiet our souls. He says this, Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. That is the key. That's the key. The key to a hope-filled life. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. What do you mean, David? Help us understand what you're saying here. Well, notice that he says, it's a weaned child. It's already happened. We're beyond that. The child is in a new stage. In the Hebrew culture, weaning took place around the age of three. We're a little bit different than that. Um, But the process is nevertheless the same. It's a process where the child is gradually weaned from his nursing mother. And it occurs in a couple of stages that are insightful. The first stage, and most of you have no need to be reminded of this stage. But let me walk you through a little bit of it. First, the first stage is really the first year of life. The baby knows that whenever he goes to mom's chest that he is close to food and will usually not be content until he gets what he wants. Right? If you want to have a newborn baby squill or maybe a couple of month old baby squill, just grab the baby and hold it like this. Right? And then the baby, if it is hungry, will go crazy. There's something about muscle memory. But a baby that's not weaned, cannot be near the mother's chest without great agitation. And I don't know if it's true of you and your children that you've raised, but all of our children so far act like someday we're going to just stop feeding them all of a sudden. (laughs) It's pitiful. Little Amos, he's just... I mean, it really is a sad thing. They're so skeptical of us. In that first year, um, they're just so skeptical. They think, okay, today's going to be the day that they don't feed me. Here it comes. I knew it was coming all along, and now it's here. And now the agitation and panic and chaos. That is the first stage. The second stage, though, is when the child begins to be weaned by his mother. And now the panic really sets in, right? It's like, I always thought the day would come when mom would starve me, and here it is. It's been, you know, two hours, and I have not had uh, the milk that I love, and I'm having to eat this other food. Uh, This is terrible. And the child can hardly even be around his mother without fussing and screaming and everything else. That's the weaning phase. But David is at a different stage, right? He doesn't say like a child in the process of being weaned. He says like a weaned child. After the child is weaned, he learns to eat other food. And now, 
the child is able to rest on the mother's chest without fretting about what it used to find as indispensable. It doesn't need milk anymore. So the child can now rest upon his mother's chest simply because he loves his mother. And that is the stage David is talking about. Like a weaned child upon its mother. David is resting upon God. He's not agitated. He's not anxiously grasping to get more or to have the things that God has not given him. He's totally content in the person of God. He's still composed, quiet, and tranquil. You want a a composed soul? Find everything you need in God and rest. It's all provided for. Be like the birds that they don't work. You don't find them pushing a plow. They just, they're fed. They receive everything that God has for them. Be like the lilies of the field that grow or the blue bonnets that grow. They're beautiful. They don't do anything. They just receive all that God gives them. And they're content. It's a beautiful illustration. The mature believer rests upon God. Not in order to leverage God to get more of what I want. They rest upon God because of who God is and what He has done. The mature believer goes through every good good thing, every gift to praise God. But ultimately, the mature believer is absolutely content if all the gifts were gone. But don't take God away, right? Don't take Him, because that's everything. Well, Spurgeon captured this really well, as only Spurgeon can. He says this, To the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. To the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forego the joys which once appeared to be essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. Then we behave manfully, and every childish complaint is hushed. If the Lord removes our dearest delight, we bow to his will without a murmuring thought. In fact, we find a delight in giving up our delight. Blessed are those afflictions which subdue our affections, which wean us from self-sufficiency, which educate us in Christian maturity, which teach us to love God not merely when He comforts us, but even when He tries us. That is where David is. And that is learned. Learned. Learned in relationship with God to be content with Him. Friends, if you want to live a hope-filled life, here's all you have to do. It's this easy. Cultivate a humble heart before God. I know that you know I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. We are proud creatures, and we have to struggle and fight to be humble. You want a a hope-filled life? Cultivate a humble heart before God, and then find your delight in the God who loves you more than any earthly mother. Be content in Him. God says this of Himself. The Lord, Isaiah 49 But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Do you feel that way in trial sometimes? Yeah, the Lord is, he's just, he's not there. He said he would never leave me or forsake me, but it feels that way right now. But listen to what God responds with. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Or have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. If you are in Christ, if you have repented, confessed your sin, and are embracing the Lord Jesus for your righteousness, you are loved. The Lord loves you 
He cares for you. You're on his heart. He has not forgotten you when life is hard. When you are convinced of this level of love and goodness from the Father's hand, you will be content with God and you will gladly join the hymn writer who wrote this. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore, to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true each morning new. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, Yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is around me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. That is hope. That is hope. And that is what David was calling these people to. And I pray with the Lord's help, we'll hear His call and be people that live lives that are full of hope. Let's pray. Father, we have so much to be hopeful about. You have not only saved us, lifted us out of the pit of our sin, set us on a a rock and placed a song in our heart, but Lord, you have also promised to provide all that we need. You have promised to be our God, to lead us, to be our shepherd, And here we see that you are our loving father and even loving mother. Lord, you are affectionate and kind and merciful and gracious towards us all because of the work of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we praise you for him and pray that you would fill our hearts with this hope. Help us to cultivate this hope for your namesake. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.